This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. Writer-director Wes Anderson's latest film is Asteroid City. It's about a tiny town in the middle of the American desert where several young scientific prodigies gather to receive a distinguished award. Also, there's an alien. If you know Anderson's work, the themes are familiar. Teenage awkwardness, grief, wistful alienation, strained familial bonds. The ensemble includes many Anderson go-tos like Jason Schwartzman, Jeffrey Wright, and Tilda Swinton. But there is some new blood in the mix. Tom Hanks, Steve Carell, and Maya Hawke. And, of course, there's those characteristic Wes Anderson formalist visuals. So recognizable, so stylishly symmetrical, so memeable. I'm Glenn Weldon, and today we're talking about Asteroid City on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Joining me today is one of the hosts of The Indicator from Planet Money, Waylon Wong. Welcome back, Waylon. Thanks. Great to be back. Great to have you. Also with us is writer Chris Klimek. Hey, Chris. I saved Latin, Glenn. What did you ever do? There you go. <laughs> Asteroid City is set, sort of, in the tiny desert town of Asteroid City, population 87, in 1955. I say sort of because what we're watching is actually a television broadcast hosted by a narrator, played by Brian Cranston, of the making of a play called Asteroid City. Got all that? The central plot of the play Asteroid City has to do with five young people receiving the Space Cadet Award. Jason Schwartzman, Scarlett Johansson, and an Andersonian ensemble of actors play both characters in the play, which is to say the movie we're watching, and the actors playing them. So at every layer of storytelling, TV broadcast, play, movie, pretty much everyone's grappling with what it all means and how to render it truthfully. This is writer-director Wes Anderson's 11th film, and it's in theaters now. Waylon, lots to chew on, so bite me off a piece. What'd you think? <laughs> I was very charmed by this movie, and it's been a while since I really connected emotionally with a Wes Anderson film. I huh. think the last few, they didn't quite do it for me, and I was thinking about why this one did do it for me, and I think it's because, you know, I connect most with Wes Anderson films that are about like oddball, precocious children, which is obviously like a big recurring theme of his. But like even more importantly, like in those films, I like that the adults take the children seriously. Like that's what's Mm -hmm. really important to me, that kind of theme, which is why I like Rushmore, which is why I like Moonrise Kingdom, like Royal Tenenbaums, I would like throw in that category as well. Right. And I think that it's something maybe kind of Proustian for me. I don't know, because mm-hmm. being a kind of like an odd child who's just kind of like into stuff that not necessarily like my other peers are into and then now being like the mother to a bit of an odd duck kid mm-hmm. who's very like precocious as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it all just kind of clicks into place for me emotionally. Did you guys ever play with like Calico Critters or like Maple Town or Sylvanian Family? Oh, no. <laughs> Those are like these little toys that are like woodland creatures and they wear like old timey clothes and you can get play sets for them. <laughs> when I watch a Wes Anderson film, that's what it reminds me of. I used to play like People's Court with my Maple Town <laughs> oh, wow. families and I, I had like the schoolroom set for them and everything with these like tiny books. So when I'm in this world with these like deeply serious, nerdy children and they're grown ups, I just 
I love it. I like can't get enough of it. So that's kind of why I liked it so much. That's really interesting. You found a connection, a through line through some of this awkward teenage, you know, child prodigy, child genius kind of thing to kind of give yourself away in. That's interesting. Chris, what'd you think of the movie? I love this. I mean, when it comes uh-huh. to Wes Anderson, I am I am predictably a stan. I feel like this movie is maybe slightly a, a bit of a course correction from him after the French Dispatch, which I loved, the sort of nesting doll structure of this thing where we're watching the TV broadcast of the stage production of this incident, that is even more ornate in in the French Dispatch to a point where, like, even though you get broadly that we're seeing different features in the same issue of the magazine dramatized, it, it becomes difficult to follow. And the number of people I talked to who told me they started that film but didn't finish it was kind of surprising. Hmm. I didn't find in the case of the French Dispatch that nesting dolls within nesting dolls kind of structure forbidding. But I do feel like going into this, Anderson wanted to simplify it a bit. And uh, I, hmm. I think it worked. I think that overcame the coldness that, that with which some people receive his films. I mean, I never did. You know, the, the Royal Tenenbaums makes me cry every time. And I know that's the one that people often cite as like, well, you know, I, I liked your early work, Wes. But yeah, no, I, I love this. All right. Well, okay. This is <laughs> across the board, tens across the board, because I dug it. I love this era of American life. Let me clarify. I love the aesthetics of this era of American life. A lot of bad things going on. But like having a Wes Anderson interpret those and juice them and goose them the way he has. This film is a joy to look at. And look, you both mentioned it. This guy delivers what he delivers and no one else delivers it. That's a pretty good working definition of a stylist, right? So Mm. this is why the critique we're going to get when this film comes out, we always get. The same critique. It's style over substance, aesthetic over emotion, dioramas over drama, which I just made up, but I think it's pretty good. Affectless, <laughs> cold. He's doing what he does, right? He Is he accomplishing what he sets out to do? I think he is. And if that makes me an apologist, then I am. You don't go into Joanne Fabrics looking for a power drill. You don't chomp into a Hershey bar and say, it doesn't taste enough like lasagna. He does this, this precise thing. <laughs> this is what he does. And if you don't like it, that's fine. That's taste. But complaining that you're not getting... The kind of emotionalism you get out of a Spielberg or Barry Jenkins, you're going into a butcher shop and you're asking for mung beans and he doesn't owe you mung beans. But you both kind of proactively (laughs) push back on that point that I made there because you say in films like, and again, it's always Rushmore and Tenenbaums, where he's doing more in terms of emotion than he's doing here. So what do you think is like this distancing technique of these framing devices? He's not a filmmaker I would go to and say, you know what, Wes? Maybe a little bit more distance from these characters. Maybe that should be a thing you should do. If you do feel an emotional connection, where is the emotional connection coming from? For me, it's like, I guess I should preface this by saying that I approach like all films and books and TV with my emotional drawbridge like fully down all the time. So like if the person making that art is like sincere about it and even like reaching out a little bit, I am like going all the way to meet them, right? And I am like always looking for something in my own kind of like inner psyche that I can bond with. Mm-hmm. I've never found Wes Anderson chilly in that way. And maybe it's also because his visual style appeals to me. But I do go into it kind of like fully open and wanting to feel something. So whatever he's giving, even if it's like a little bit and it's like very tightly controlled and in the form of just like a exquisitely designed sign at a diner, like I'm there and I'm like reaching for it and I'm grabbing mm-hmm. onto it. But I think it's like... What I connected with emotionally is like there are these kids who are like geniuses and they don't have necessarily the most kind of open affects, right? Like you can 
you know that they're thinking a lot of big thoughts and big feelings that are like too big for their like adolescent brains. And they're also like trying to relate to the grownups in their lives who grownups who, again, like take them seriously, who support them, who have like brought them all the way out to this like teeny tiny town to get this award because it's important to their like development and what they're interested in. But even within those grownup relationships, it's like they have trouble relating to each other. Everyone is like feeling feelings that they can't say. Right. And that is like very clear in the Jason Schwartzman storyline. Sure. But I guess I just really love the marriage of this like extremely locked down, detailed, fastidious visual style with this idea that everyone is feeling big feelings that they can't like express in a big way. For me, it's like almost meta. It's like looping back on itself where like maybe Wes Anderson is feeling some really big feelings, but he's not the kind of guy who is going to have someone like shouting something from the top of a building. So instead, he builds an incredibly detailed diorama and then has these people saying things to each other where there's a lot going on beneath the surface, but they're only saying like a tiny little bit or they're just staring at each other. And I really like that, you know? Yeah. I go through life with my drawbridge up and the portcullis down and a row of archers <laughs> just kind of looking up. <laughs> so we approach these films differently and I have a, a visceral reaction against sentimentality, not sentiment, but sentimentality. And that's nothing, something I've never accused Wes Anderson of because, again, he writes about these characters who are so disaffected because they're broken, because it's exactly as you said, women, they're afraid to connect. Yes, it also happens that they're they're standing very still, uh, so the composition of the shot looks good. (laughs) But filmmakers are drawn to a kind of persona, a kind of personality, a kind of personality disorder. And, you know, I think Schwartzman, as you mentioned, is great here. He gets to emote as much as anyone yeah. in an Anderson film has ever emoted, not necessarily as the character of Augie, who's the guy in the play, but mm-hmm. as the actor out in the behind-the-scenes mm-hmm. stuff, he gets to do a lot more stuff than I usually see Jason Schwartzman doing. Yeah, that for me is the emotional through line uh, of this, Glenn, is, is just watching that evolution of Jason Schwartzman from Rushmore to this. Mm-hmm. You know, he's an adolescent in that movie, and in this... He is uh, a widower. You know, he's a dad in his 40s who's responsible for uh, these four children. Um, He has withheld the news of their mother's death from them. (laughs) She died weeks ago, and he has not yet found a way to tell them. You know, and he's holding all that internally. And, um, you know, although his... his... And in a Tupperware container. Hello, 1955. Exactly. (laughs) Yes, he is holding emotionally internally, and he is holding the remains of his wife in (laughs) Tupperware. And and what you said about sort of monotone acting style that accompanies the the very rigidly controlled, symmetrical, you know, uh, pastel kind of visuals of these movies. I mean, I think Wes Anderson movies are are kind of useful for helping people to understand what, what subtext is, what actors do all the things that they're they're thinking but not saying and i think anderson really likes to since since one of the things that i find so delightful about him as a director is that he likes to reuse the same company of actors over and over again to the point that i'm watching this yeah. and i'm like oh when are we going to see <laughs> tilda you know when is uh... something i ask myself all the time just in i know i know glenn <laughs> but much more recently a a delightful recent addition to the wes anderson players as of the french dispatch is the magnificent jeffrey wright yeah oh, who is absolutely the star of that movie uh, of the French Dispatch, I mean, playing this sort of James Baldwin-like figure where he gets to be very emotional. And then in this film, he's the military man, right? He's the general yeah. overseeing this quarantine of this this town where the you know the government isn't sure that they, <laughs> they want to go public with this story of a maybe, maybe not UFO visitation. So I, I love that. I, I love that, that we take Jeffrey Wright and use him this way, and we got to use him again, but we're going to use him mm-hmm. in a completely different way. I find that very satisfying as you, you look at you know, all of these movies in, in the arc of Anderson's career. 
Oh, I was going to ask if when you were watching Jason Schwartzman in this role, if you thought about whether or not this was kind of like Max Fisher grown up <laughs> and now parenting weird kids of his own. Because obviously the timelines don't work out, but kind of in this yeah, like alternate sure. timeline where Max Fisher lived in this time, he like grew up and now has this like really cute teenage kid who loves science. And, you know, he like drove him out to get this like special award. I had all that going on emotionally in my head when I was watching this. And it, it felt really poignant because it's like we've grown up with Jason Schwartzman, yeah. you know, and I'm like, I cannot believe I've been watching this collaboration between director and actor for all of this time. It made me feel old, but not necessarily like a bad way, just in kind of like a poignant way. Yeah. Yeah, me too. But there is an addition to the Anderson ensemble in this movie too, and that's Tom Hanks. He plays the father-in-law of Jason Schwartzman's character, Augie, and look, the dig against and my dig for <laughs> Anderson's style is <laughs> like, it's a mannered style of acting. There is an archness to it. There's a stiffness. None of those words are associated in the popular mind with America's dad, Tom Hanks. So <laughs> does he make a good fit? What'd you think of Tom Hanks in this? I think the, the way that a big star like Hanks is willing to subordinate himself to the company here is really terrific. And I think he gets the Andersonian restrained delivery without sacrificing the Hanks. The best example I can think of is, uh, and I, I wish I could remember if it was Hope Davis or Scarlett Johansson uh, who he's speaking to when, when there's this conversation where there are six other things going on and he just slides up to her and just says like, are you married? Which you know, to a man of his generation, like that's the most explicit come on that you could imagine, right? Uh -huh. I really liked him in this and I was thinking, would I watch Tom Hanks do Steve Zizou in Life Aquatic? Uh -huh. And I don't think that would have worked. But I think Tom Hanks really works in this one. I think because it's limited and because it's a very specific kind of thing he's doing where he is kind of buttoned up, right? He's emotionally reserved. You can tell he's also like quite broken, but he's like making an effort. And, you know, he comes to get his grandchildren and where I think the Tom Hanksiness is allowed to shine through a little bit, you know, is when he's talking to his granddaughters and exactly. they're figuring out, you know, what to do about the mom's ashes. It's a beautiful scene. I think I cried in that uh -huh. scene because it's like you don't necessarily expect him to be so like indulgent of these children and their feelings, but he completely is. Do you uh -huh. know what I mean? He lets them direct what is happening with their own grief journey and what they need to do to process what's happened to their mother. And I thought that was beautiful. And I thought that having the Tom Hanks aura come in there was really lovely. And, it, you know, it was great to see Tom Hanks doing that. Right. Well, to Chris's point, this is you are imposing all these like restrictions on your actors, like the Tom Hanks character is uh, gruff and a little broken and certainly closed off. But within those tiny parameters, you get to see the warmth of Tom Hanks peeking through. Same thing happened in French Dispatch with uh, Jeffrey Wright. It's exactly the same kind of thing where when you're hemmed in by either genre constraints or any kind of creativity, there's room in that little tiny space to really innovate and really create and really make a huge impression. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, well, we want to know what you think about Asteroid City. You know what we do. We like it. Uh, find us at Facebook.com slash PCHH. Up next, what is making us happy this week? Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. 
I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research, on, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. Now it is time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What is making us happy this week? Waylon Wong, kick us off. What's making you happy this week? Okay, so recently I saw a tweet from someone who said that they used to put on the DVD of the social network in the background and just watch and listen to the DVD menu over and over in the background. And so then I was like, oh, yeah, that was a really good DVD menu. So then I just found it on YouTube because I didn't feel like digging out my own social network DVD, which is in the basement somewhere. So I put on just the YouTube video and I was like, this is amazing. There's like the sound of like a luxurious envelope sliding under a door. There's ambient noise from the Harvard campus. There's a clacky keyboard, which to me was very like proto ASMR. And then there's a few bars of the Trent Reznor Atticus Ross score. This is what's making me happy because it was something I hadn't thought about in a long time that when I discovered it gave me like a very simple moment of pleasure. And like the DVD menu itself seems like a piece of pop culture ephemera that's getting memory hold because we don't really have physical media anymore. And like one day I'm going to be trying to explain what the DVD menu is to my grandkids. It's going to be that meme where it's like, okay, grandma, let's get you to bed. And I'll be like, no, you don't understand. You heard like (laughs) one bar of music from the score of the social network and it was amazing. So I recommend everyone check out, uh, just look up on YouTube, the DVD menu from the social network. All right. The DVD menu from the social network and DVD menu writ large going away the dough. Awesome. Love it. Love it. Chris Klimek, what's making you happy this week? Glenn, sometimes I like to come in, as I occasionally do, to endorse a book that I wish I had thought to write. That is the case this time. Uh, What is making me happy and deeply envious is Nick DeSimilin's The Last Action Heroes, The Triumphs, Flops, and Feuds of Hollywood's Kings of Carnage. This is a series of profiles. It's Stallone, it's Bruce Willis, but also uh, some people who came to the United States to make it big in action movies. So we we get uh, Jackie Chan, we get Jean-Claude Van Damme. Mm -hmm. I did learn the origin of the famous shot in Predator when Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers greet each other, and then there's the close-up of their bulging biceps as they're clasping hands. (laughs) But what is making me happy... And envious is Nick DeSemelin's The Last Action Heroes. Great book. Great recommendation. And Chris, I'm sorry. 
<laughs> What's making me happy this week is Dungeons and Drag Queens. Hey, wow. who's got two thumbs and feels ruthlessly targeted? <laughs> Who feels heavily marketed too? It's this guy. <laughs> it will premiere on June 28th on Dropout, which I never know how to explain this kind of stuff, but it's an independent nerdy comedy streaming service app. And the players of this uh, game of Dungeons and Dragons and Dungeons and Drag Queens is Bob the Drag Queen, Monet Exchange, Jujubee, and Alaska. That is a solid group. And maybe more importantly, the GM, the game master, the guy who's taking them through the world of the game, will be Brennan Lee Mulligan, who is very, very, very good at what he does. I haven't seen it yet, to be clear, but the dropout people know what they're doing. I am on tenterhooks about Dungeons and Drag Queens, say it's soft and it's almost like praying, which is coming out on dropout.tv starting June 28th. And that is what's making me happy this week. And if you want links for what we recommended, plus some more recommendations, sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash popculturenewsletter. And that brings us to the end of our show. Waylon Wong, Chris Klimek, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, what a blast. Thank you. This episode was produced by Ramel Wood and edited by Jessica Reedy. And Hello Come In provides our theme music. Thank you all for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Glenn Weldon, and we'll see you all next week. When the economic news gets to be a bit much... Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money. We're here for you, like your friends, trying to figure out all the most confusing parts. One story, one idea, every day. All in 10 minutes or less. The Indicator from Planet Money. Your friendly economic sidekick. From NPR. The economy right now is bewildering, impenetrable, inconceivable. Not when you have the indicator of podcast in your ears. In under 10 minutes every day, we simplify the complicated news like... How does inflation drop? What the heck is a SPAC? Why are trendy little high-fiber sodas suddenly dominating store shelves? And more. Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money and NPR. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.